Welcome back. Podcast 27 is the last in our journey with Joseph Smith in the series called Footsteps of Joseph, finishing up with beautiful correlations between the life of Jesus Christ and Joseph Smith. We're also excited to announce two new events coming up Saturday, September 18th in Lehigh, Utah, and Friday, October 1st in Midway, Utah at the Zermatt Resort. Tickets will go on sale next week with a link on comefollowme2021.com. Welcome to our podcast today. Our uh, journey is going to come to a conclusion today. We've had 25 podcasts following the footsteps of Joseph, and today's podcast will conclude that journey. Today's podcast is entitled, Jesus and Joseph, Mere Reflections. Over the past number of years, it has become apparent that there's been a tireless effort to try and diminish the accomplishments of the prophet Joseph Smith, to make him average, to make him weak. I want to share with you a portion of a conference talk delivered in 2014 by Elder Neil L. Anderson. He said this, Many of those who dismiss the work of the Restoration simply do not believe that heavenly beings speak to men on earth. Impossible, they say, that golden plates were delivered by an angel and translated by the power of God. From that disbelief, they quickly reject Joseph's testimony, and a few, unfortunately, sink to discredit the prophet. They slander his character and his life. We are especially saddened when someone who once revered Joseph retreats from his or her convictions and then maligns the prophet. And then again in October of 2016, Elder Craig C. Christensen said, In the war between good and evil, the restoration of the gospel through the prophet Joseph Smith has both inspired believers who follow him and provoked antagonists who fight furiously against the cause of Zion and against Joseph himself. This battle is not new. It began soon after young Joseph walked into the sacred grove and continues today with added visibility on the internet. Jesus and Joseph, mere reflections. Jesus descended from Judah, Joseph from Ephraim. Jesus and Joseph's missions were foreordained. Jesus was born in a small village. Joseph was born in a rural township. Jesus and Joseph both had relatively large families. Jesus and Joseph had earthly parents named Joseph. Jesus was a stonemason. That's a discussion for another podcast. Joseph was a farmer. Jesus lived with apostasy in Judaism. Joseph lived with apostasy in Christianity. Both were opposed by religious and political leaders. Both were subject to satanic attacks. Both were ministered to by angels. Both performed miracles. Both organized a church. Both were betrayed. Both were charged with treason. Both were victims of traitorous plots. Both were abandoned by their respective governors. Both were beaten, mocked, and asked to perform miracles by their heartless captors. Jesus declared to his captors, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. Joseph Smith declared, You don't know me. No man knows my history. If I had not experienced it, I would not have believed it. Both were the source of new scripture. Both sealed their testimonies with their blood. The mothers of Jesus and Joseph buried their sons. Jesus and Joseph were the two greatest prophets of all time. So, was Joseph Smith an average individual, as the internet would have you believe today? December 22nd is the winter solstice. It is the darkest, longest, and often coldest night of the year. 
The ancients were troubled by this night as its life-giving light sank lower and lower into the western sky. Fear gripped their hearts as they faced what they believed would be permanent cold and darkness. Well, through that black night, they wandered to the edge of the great cliffs, and there they knelt in prayer, praying for the return of light and warmth. On December 23, 1805, after such a night as this, light did return to the earth. It took the form of an infant child, the fourth of Lucy Mac Smith, and they would call him Joseph. Let me read to you the very descriptive words of Elder John G. McGuire, president of the Eastern States Mission at the dedication of the Joseph Smith Monument in 1905. He said this, Far back in the very dawning of the Restoration period, we may discern emerging as from a mist, a plain-looking New England home. Hovering over its hearthstone is the halo of primitive Puritan influence. Here we witness the humble birth and childhood as innocent and retired as that of the Savior. Fourteen years later, the scene has changed. We observe our babe of Sharon, Vermont, as a farm boy of Manchester, New York. He is just retiring from crowds where the question of serving God is being fiercely discussed by men for he's made a discovery in reading from the epistle of James. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. He retires to the seclusion of a native forest, and we see him kneeling in humble prayer. But this picture is instantly forgotten in beholding a vision more glorious than the transfiguration, for both the Father and Son appear to him in a pillar of light, compared with which the noonday sun is only a faint suggestion. The burden of the boy's prayer is simple, direct and from the heart. Which church shall I join? The response, just as simple, direct and from the heart. Join none of them. E.T. Sullivan once wrote, When God wants a great work done in the world or a great wrong righted, he goes about it in a very unusual way. He doesn't stir up his earthquakes or send forth his thunderbolts. Instead, he has a helpless baby born, perhaps in a simple home of some obscure mother. And then God puts the idea into the mother's heart, and she puts it into the baby's mind. And then God waits. The greatest forces in the world are not the earthquakes and thunderbolts. The greatest forces in the world are babies. This podcast that I'm going to present today, I want to emphasize two aspects of the life of Joseph that made him capable of doing many of the same things the Savior did. The first, Joseph's courage, wielded much like, as I have right here, the sword of Laban. The sword of Laban. This ancient Nephite treasure represents authority and strength. It is named after its first known possessor, Laban, around 600 BC. The sword was taken from Laban by Nephi, son of Lehi. It is speculated that the sword's origin goes back to Joseph of Egypt, who commissioned it to be a symbol of priesthood authority and strength. The second aspect of Joseph's life is his uncanny ability to stay the course, much like the Leahona that I have here in my hand. The Leahona used to guide every step of Lehi and his family to the promised land, similarly guided the footsteps of Joseph. Joseph's humble birth, like that of the Savior, was forecast long ago. In 2 Nephi 3, 14 and 15, Joseph of Egypt prophesied of his namesake, Joseph of America. 
he said, and I quote, And thus prophesied Joseph, saying, That seer will the Lord bless, and they that seek to destroy him shall be confounded. For this promise which I have obtained of the Lord of the fruit of my loins shall be fulfilled. Behold, I am sure of the fulfilling of this promise. And his name shall be called after me, and it shall be after the name of his father. And he shall be like unto me, for the things which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand, by the power of the Lord shall bring my people unto salvation. Well, like the Savior at Joseph's birth, there were Herods of his day, quote, wanting to kill the child. Country doctor Joseph Adam Dennison aided in Lucy's delivery, and years later he said, quote, if I'd know how he was going to turn out, I would have smothered the little cuss. But others, like Joseph's paternal grandfather, Aziel Smith, had a feeling that one of his descendants would be a great teacher and leader of men. He said, quote, It has been borne in upon my soul that one of my descendants will create a work to revolutionize the world of religious faith. Well, as with all of God's appointed, Joseph was called at a young age. He had a message to impart to the world, and with that message delivered, Satan would unleash a torrent of persecution that would last the rest of his days. Constantly, the prophet's life was beset by assassins. Each hour brought some new menace. Just as Joseph and Mary were warned to flee with the infant Jesus to Egypt to escape the destruction Herod had planned, so Joseph Smith was led to seek a variety of residents to escape the Herods of his day. Now, initially, those who persecuted Joseph were religious men, lawyers, much like the Sadducees and Pharisees, the lawyers and scribes who persecuted Jesus. At Joseph's death, those that would stand trial for his murder would be two lawyers, one justice of the peace, and one senator. Joseph would also have his close friends betray him. The verbal abuse that Joseph suffered over the course of his life was intolerable, but let us not forget his physical setbacks. Well, during the year of 1812 and 1813, a plague of typhoid fever devastated the New Hampshire countryside. 6,400 people died in five months and the plague was not selective. Seven-year-old Joseph Jr. was infected. His pain was initially looked at by Dr. Parker, who thought the pain was from a sprain of his left arm. He anointed it with liniment and left it misdiagnosed. The pain brought Dr. Parker back again two weeks later. This time a quart of fluid was drained from his underneath his left arm. With Joseph suffering from typhoid fever and having had an undrained abscess for over four weeks, bacteria spread by way of the bloodstream into the tibia of his left leg. As soon as the abscess was drained, the pain shot like lightning into the marrow of his bone. The pain was unbearable. The leg began to swell for the next three weeks. The surgeons were called. An eight-inch incision was made between the knee and the ankle. The pain was temporarily abated. However, it did not stop the swelling or the spread of infection. Hiram spent hours sitting by the bed of Joseph applying pressure to the leg to relieve the pain. The infection in Joseph's leg went unchecked for at least two months. A council of surgeons was called. The group included Nathan Smith, Cyrus Perkins, and Dr. Stone from nearby Dartmouth Medical School. Dr. Smith asked for permission to perform an experimental operation that might save Joseph's leg. Lucy consented. Joseph refused to be bound and refused brandy or wine to deaden the pain. He sat through the entire operation in the arms of his father. 
The doctors drilled on both sides of the infected tibia and with forceps snapped out three large pieces of infected bone. As the wound healed, 14 other pieces of dead bone fragments would work their way out of Joseph's leg. He would forever have a slight limp. Now, reading from a medical journal, we hear the rest of the story. Quote, the technique Nathan Smith developed of drilling, sawing, and removing dead bone in cases of osteomyelitis, thus preventing the unnecessary amputation of extremities, was not standardized until more than 100 years later. Thus, when a young patient in Lebanon, New Hampshire, was suffering from osteomyelitis in 1813, Nathan Smith was the only physician in the United States at the time who had the vision, knowledge, and necessary surgical experience to deal successfully with the problem without amputating the leg. Now, whether Nathan Smith can be credited with having saved Joseph's life, he certainly saved the boy's leg. And who knows whether religious history might have turned out quite differently if Joseph had been an amputee from early childhood. Joseph's family also suffered many setbacks. For two successive seasons, the family faced crop failures in Norwich, Vermont. Joseph Sr. planted one last time in hope of success. If the year 1816 resulted in, in crop failure, it was time to move on to greener pastures. Perhaps New York where he had heard that wheat was being raised in abundance. Well, the result of that third year was monumental, total devastation. In fact, the year of 1816 would become known as the year without a summer, or 1800 and frozen to death. Snow fell in June and July. Now, reading from a science journal, we hear the rest of the story. Quote, this phenomenon was due to a dramatic change in the weather patterns caused by the volcanic eruption of Mount Tambora in Indonesia. The hot air rising from the mountain caused hurricane winds to converge from all directions, drying up entire buildings and all forms of life. Of interest to Latter-day Saints is the role this eruption came to play in the history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Mount Tambora ejected so much matter into the atmosphere that it shaded the sun's rays and cooled the earth by over one degree centigrade. Snow fell in June and July, and the frost killed crops in August. Well, the Smith family had suffered enough. It was time to move on. They decided to move to a little obscure town in upstate New York, a place called Palmyra. Starvation, disease, and death continued to knock at the door of Joseph. George Q. Cannon said, No man of this generation was so passionately loved, no man so cruelly hated. Satan knew that if the work of which God had chosen Joseph to do prevailed, his power and dominion would be eventually overthrown. Therefore, against the prophet, the most profound depths of hell were stirred up. While he lived, he was the target at which the most deadly shafts of Satan were directed. Now, Joseph was persecuted, threatened, and driven. And like the Savior, as spoken of in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, quote, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have their nest, but the Son of Man hath nowhere to lay his head. Forty-six times the prophet was charged with some trumped-up accusation. Forty-five times he was acquitted. Actually, on one occasion in the state of New York, he was found guilty in court of casting out an evil spirit. However, when sentencing, the judge observed that to the best of his knowledge, there was no ordinance forbidding the casting out of evil spirits, and he was set free. Courageously, he walked with the Lord by his side. 
On one occasion, when confronted by a threatening mob who administered an oath of driving all Mormons to hell, he calmly said, Never mind, my brethren, if they drive us to hell, we'll turn the devil out and make heaven out of it. Well, Joseph was not alone in the challenges he faced. He was escorted by his loving wife, Emma, and beloved brother, Hiram. Uh, For certainty, the record is clear and simple. Joseph loved Emma with his whole soul, and she was an elect lady, as well as being chosen the first president of the Relief Society. Quote, he and Emma had 11 children, only five would survive. In the ache of her bosom at the loss of twins, Emma moved the prophet to go and bring home twins, a boy and a girl whose mother had died that same week. Unfortunately, the boy died at 11 months due to exposure suffered the night the prophet was mobbed, tarred, and feathered. The girl lived to maturity but never responded to the gospel message. Only in one instance did Emma bear a child in a home that she could call her own, and that was David Hiram Smith, born after Joseph's death. Later in life, David would suffer mentally and would be confined to and die in an insane asylum in upstate Illinois. Well, undaunted, Joseph and Emma showed great courage and stayed the course. Hiram was five years older than Joseph. He was like John the Beloved in the Bible (laughs) whom Christ loved. The role of Hiram in the restoration of the gospel was second only to the prophet Joseph. The brothers were inseparable during their periods of trouble as well as peace. Seldom did the prophet Joseph do anything of importance without first consulting Hiram. Always, when in trouble, he would seek out his older brother for help and advice. In fact, Joseph said this of Hiram, I could pray in my heart that all my brethren were likened to my beloved brother Hiram, who possesses the mildness of a lamb and the integrity of a Job, and in short, the meekness and humility of Christ. I love him with that love that is stronger than death, for I have never had an occasion to rebuke him. Joseph had great faith. And like the Savior, he performed many miracles. He healed and was healed himself. The first miracle of the church was performed on behalf of Brother Newell Knight, who was grasped by an evil spirit that brought him near death. But in the absence of many, the spirit was cast out, and Brother Knight was given a vision of great glory. But perhaps the greatest example of priesthood power exercised happened on what I call that great day of miracles, July 22nd, 1839. As the saints meandered into Nauvoo, they looked much like those returning from war, most of them destitute and beaten down. Joseph knew that an influx of new blood was desperately needed for the church to survive. On July 2nd, 1839, Joseph called a meeting of the Twelve Apostles to give them instructions prior to their departure for their missions abroad. They remembered the revelation Joseph had received in July 1838, commanding the Twelve to depart for missions over the Great Waters. On Sunday, July 7th, 1839, a farewell meeting was held. Unfortunately, the following week, A malaria epidemic hit Nauvoo and the apostles were stricken and unable to leave on their missions. The adversary could not have timed these disheartening circumstances better. For many this appeared to be the final battle. Weakened and exhausted, they were easy prey for the diseases of the swamp. Wilfred Woodruff recorded the events of July 22, 1839. 
Well, after being confined to his house several days and while meditating upon the situation, Joseph had a great desire to attend to the duties of his office. On the morning of July 22nd, 1839, he arose from his bed and began administering to the sick in his own house and dooryard. And he commanded them in the name of Jesus Christ to arise and be made whole. And the sick were healed on every side of him. Many lay sick along the bank of the river. Joseph walked along and healed all the sick that lay in his path. Among those was Henry Sherwood, who was nigh unto death. Joseph stood in the door of his tent and commanded him in the name of Jesus Christ to arise and come out of his tent. And he obeyed him and was healed. Brother Benjamin Brown and his family also lay sick, the former appearing to be in a dying condition. Joseph healed all of them. Joseph with a few brethren crossed the Mississippi to visit the sick in Montrose. Many saints were living in the old military barracks. Among the number were several of the twelve apostles. On his arrival, the first house he went to was Brigham Young, the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. Joseph healed him and then he rose and accompanied the prophet on his visit to others who were sick and dying. They visited Orson Pratt and John Taylor. He healed them. As they crossed the public square and entered Brother Fordham's house, they found him in a dying condition and expected that any minute would be his last. Brother Joseph took Brother Fordham's hand. He saw that Brother Fordham's eyes were glazed and he lay speechless and near unconscious. He looked down into the dying man's face and said, Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? He heard a faint, I do. The prophet of God then spoke with a loud voice as in the majesty of Jehovah. Elijah, I command you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth to rise and be made whole. It seemed to me that the house shook on its foundation. Elijah Fordham leaped from his bed like a man raised from the dead. Many others were healed that day. Great priesthood power was exercised. The greatest gift given Joseph was the same as the Savior, is the gift of virtue. I'm wearing a Israeli talit right now, a, a robe that uh, has lots of knots and strings on the end of it. And I want to share with you a, a story. It's found in Mark chapter 5, verses 25 through 34. We learn of a pagan woman of some means from Caesarea Philippi and she had this issue of blood for over 12 years. She had heard of Christ healing in the, in the Galilee and she decided to go there and be healed. Now religious Jews wear a shawl or a tallet like I have on. The strings of the hem of the tallet are knotted so the sum of the strings and knots equals 613, which is the number of laws and covenants that the Lord gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. It was probably Jesus' tallet that the woman touched. From a Jewish perspective, she would have been doubly unclean to have done this, a non-Jew who was uh, hemorrhaging. She apparently thought she could sneak forward, touch Jesus' robe, be healed, and, uh, and walk away. But Jesus, when touched by the woman, exclaimed, Who touched me? For virtue had gone out of him. Not wanting her healing to be taken in deception, she came forward. He then exclaimed to the woman, Daughter, thy faith hath made thee whole. Now, a similar incident happened to the prophet Joseph Smith. 
One evening in March of 1843, 27 children were brought to a meeting to be blessed by Joseph. He took great joy in laying his hands on their heads and giving them blessings. After 19 blessings, Joseph turned pale, lost his strength, and was compelled to retire. Elder, Elder Jedediah M. Grant inquired of him if he were ill. Well, the prophet replied that as he was blessing the children, it became known to him that Lucifer was going to try to destroy them. Joseph then strove with all of his faith to seal upon them the blessings of security during their lives. So much virtue emanated from him that he became weakened and had to retire. Joseph referred to the case in the Bible of the woman who touched the hem of the garment of Jesus and was healed. Now, while in Nauvoo, <clears throat> many wonderful revelations were given, great doctrinal gems were spoken, church government was established, futures were forecast, and a great missionary force of the church was launched. However, the time of relative peace soon ended, and an era of apostasy fell on the leadership of Nauvoo. Such men as John C. Bennett, Nauvoo's first mayor, Sidney Rigdon, counselor in the first presidency of the church, and William Law, second counselor in the first presidency, and a number of members of the original <coughs> quorum of twelve apostles apostatized and bitterly fought against all that they once stood for. The feelings which Joseph had during these sorrowful days is best illustrated by the remarks which he made to Elder Wilford Woodruff. When being approached by Wilford one evening, the prophet scrutinized him very closely as though he could read his very thoughts, and then remarked, and I quote, Brother Woodruff, I am glad to see you. I hardly know when I meet those that have been my brethren in the Lord, who of them are my friends. They have become so scarce. In March of 1843, the prophet said, quote, I am exposed to far greater dangers from traitors amongst ourselves than from enemies without. Although my life has been sought for many years by the civil and military authorities and by the priest and people of Missouri, and if I can escape from the ungrateful treacheries of assassins, I can live like Caesar might have lived were it not for a right-hand Brutus. I have had pretended friends betray me. We have a Judas in our midst. Now Joseph's future became very clear to him by the fall and then the spring of 1843 and 1844. With the Nauvoo Temple underway, Joseph did as the Savior had done. He called his trusted friends together to impart his final blessing and endowment upon them. In John chapter 15, we read the words of the Savior to his friends. Quote, As the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. This is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Obviously alluding to his crucifixion. Well, the prophet Joseph Smith called his trusted friends together to impart his final blessing upon them. And he said, quote, There is something going to happen. I don't know what it is, but the Lord bids me to hasten and give you your endowment before the temple is finished. He conduct, conducted us through every ordinance of the holy priesthood. And when we had gone through with all the ordinances, he rejoiced very much and said, I have conferred upon you now every key and principle and power that has been bestowed upon me. On your shoulders is now the responsibility of leading this people. The Lord is going to let me rest for a while, alluding to his impending martyrdom. Well, from this moment on, the only thing that the Savior and Joseph had not concluded was to seal their testimony with their blood. 
Knowing he was going as a lamb to the slaughter, Joseph said, quote, If they take my life, I shall die an innocent man, and my blood shall cry from the ground for vengeance. And it shall yet be said of me that he was murdered in cold blood. No words can describe the sorrow he must have felt the day he left home, Monday, June 24, 1844, saying goodbye to Emma and his children. He paused briefly at the temple and with a long, wistful gaze said, This is the loveliest place, and these are the best people under heaven. Little do they know the trials that await them. At 1.30 p.m., Willard Richards became ill. Brother Stephen Markham was sent out for medication. Upon returning, he was not allowed to re-enter the jail and was forced out of town by bayonet. The occupants of the jail were now four, Joseph, Hiram, John Taylor, and Willard Richards. The stage had been set. At 3.15 p.m., Joseph had Elder Taylor sing The Poor Wayfaring Man of Grief. He sang the song twice. At 4 p.m., the guard changed. Only eight men were left on duty. The balance of the Carthage Greys were encamped a quarter of a mile away on the public square. At 5 p.m., Jailer Stegall suggested to the prisoners that they might be safer in the cell on the lower floor. Joseph turned to Brother Richards and asked, If we go into the cell, will you go with us? The doctor answered, Brother Joseph, you did not ask me to cross the river with you. You did not ask me to come to jail with you, and do you think I would forsake you now? But I will tell you what I will do. If you are to be hung for treason, I will be hung in your stead, and you shall go free. Joseph's only reply, you cannot. At 5.15 p.m., as the brethren were preparing to go below, the mob attacked. One hundred painted-faced men stormed the jail. Joseph grabbed the six-shooter, Hiram the single-barreled handgun. John Taylor reached for Stephen Markham's cane and Dr. Richards for John Taylor's cane. All sprang against the door until a ball passed through it. Joseph, John, and Willard sprang to the left of the door, trying to knock aside the guns and men forcing their way in. Hiram was backing up from the door when a ball struck him in the left side of the nose. As he fell, he exclaimed, I am a dead man. Another ball fired from outside the window entered his left side and passed through his body with such force that it completely shattered the watch he wore in his vest pocket. At the same instant, another ball from the door grazed his throat and entered his head. And finally, as he lay dead on the floor, another ball entered his left leg. Joseph cried, Oh dear brother Hiram! The room was now a shower of balls from all directions. Joseph reached around the door casing and discharged his six-shooter in the stairway. Two or three of the barrels misfired. Elder Taylor, seeing he could no longer parry the guns pushing through the door, jumped to the window where a ball fired from the door struck him in his left thigh, hitting the bone. The impact threw him against the windowsill. A second ball fired from outside, then hit his watch in his vest pocket, knocking him back into the room. He was then hit once in the left wrist and again in the left knee. He rolled under the bed where he was hit a fifth time. A ball struck him in the left hip which tore the flesh in a savage manner, throwing blood and flesh on the wall. The ball which struck his watch marked the time of the attack, 5 o'clock, 16 minutes and 26 seconds. Joseph, seeing no safety in the room and knowing that for the sake of those still alive he had to leave, calmly turned and sprang to the window. Two balls pierced him from the door, hitting him in the lower back and another in his right hip, and two hit him from the outside, one entering his right breast, the other below the heart. He fell outward from the window, exclaiming, O oh Lord, my God! He fell near the will on his left side, a dead man. 
Willard Richards, who had picked up the cane and was still attempting to ward off the enemy, heard the mob cry, He's leaped the window! The mob on the stairs ran out. Willard Richards' escape was miraculous. He was a very large man, and in the midst of a shower of bullets, he stood unscathed, with the exception of a ball which grazed the tip of the lower part of his left ear, fulfilling the prophecy given Willard earlier by the prophet when he said, The balls would fly around him like hail, and he should see his friends fall on the right and on the left, but there should not be a hole in his garment. As Willard was leaving the room to hide in an adjoining cell, he heard John Taylor cry out, Take me! Willard took John to the adjoining cell and covered him with a dirty mattress. Willard said, This is a hard case to lay you on the floor, but if your wounds are not fatal, I want you to live to tell the story. Willard expected to be shot at any moment and stood near the door awaiting the onset. Suddenly a loud cry was heard, The Mormons are coming! This caused the whole band of murderers to flee to the nearby woods. Okay, um, a couple of things I want to mention here. Um, the next slide is uh, one that depicts a Harper's Ferry 1816 flintlock musket and a 69 caliber lead ball. Um, I've had an opportunity to uh, work with some forensic scientists and some people from the University of Utah as we have tried to uh, kind of reenact some of what took place there at Carthage Jail and some things have certainly come to light. First of all, John Taylor's watch was not hit by a 69 caliber ball. It was broken as he was thrown against the windowsill marking the time of the martyrdom. Also, not sure that uh, Hiram Smith was able to utter much with the wound that he received. Um, and the Mormons are coming, might have been the militia is coming. Uh, the militia were camped out just a few blocks away at the Carthage Courthouse and hearing the gunshots were coming over to, to uh, find out what was going on. So there's some things that have since come to light, but I just wanted to, to throw that little disclaimer in there. What you see here is the weapon of choice. It's the Harper's Ferry 1816 flintlock musket. Uh, many of these muskets were uh, equipped with bayonets, making these guns over six feet in length. Later, Willard Richards commented on the many bayonets being thrust through the door. The bullet used, as I mentioned, is a 69 caliber molten lead ball, and the effective range of such weapons is less than 100 yards. The mob knew that this literally needed to be a point-blank attack. The platform at the top of the stairs measures 97 inches long and 42 inches wide. To shoot through the east door with a six-foot-long gun, a person would have to hold the gun high over the head, barrel pointed downward, and absorb recoil with hands only. Possibly two people, maybe, two individuals could stand on that platform at any one time. This, uh, with the door partially ajar then, the men would try to rush the door, trying to jam their used guns through the cracks. You have this Texas standoff that is uh, taking place. You got three attackers pushing or so from the outside and three of the brethren forcing the door closed from the inside. And this would continue until newly loaded guns were passed up the human chain on the stairs. Soon, multiple guns were forced through the door and the scene was one of utter terror and bedlam. You can imagine thick, heavy, choking white smoke would fill the staircase as gun after gun was fired. Flashes of burning powder particles would be thrown from the musket side pan in all direction, burning anyone within reach. And then you have the noise, the deafening blast after blast that echoed through the small jail. The only reprieve, again, the time it took to pass new guns to the top of the steps. The saints' reaction to the death of their beloved prophet can be summed up in the words of Brother Newell Knight. 
quote, Oh, how I love them. It seems as if all is gone, as if my very heartstrings will break. I feel as if I have nothing to live for and would rejoice to be with them in the courts of glory. Now, 25 years later, United States Secretary John Hay wrote about the trial of those accused of the murder of Joseph and Hiram. And if you haven't seen our last podcast on the trial of those five that were um, five defendants that were accused of the of the killing of Joseph and Hiram, I would refer you to the last one because we talk a little bit about Secretary Hay. He said, and I quote, there was not a man on the jury in the court or in the county that did not know that the defendants had done murder, but it was not proven, and the verdict of not guilty was right in the face of the law. Well, like the Savior, Joseph the prophet was never accepted in his own land, and not until after his death was he ever revered. Josiah Quincy, he's a Harvard-educated man and a mayor of Boston, once wrote, It is by no means improbable that some future textbook for the use of generations yet unborn will contain a question something like this. What historical American of the 19th century has exerted the most powerful influence upon the destinies of the countrymen? And it is by no means impossible that the answer to that interrogatory might be thus written, Joseph Smith, the Mormon prophet. I love Parley P. Pratt. He has incredible things to say, and he puts them in such an incredible way. Uh, th- he said this, Parley P. Pratt said this of Joseph, Had he been spared a martyr's fate till mature manhood and age, he was certainly endowed with power and ability to have revolutionized the world in many respects, and to have transmitted to posterity a name associated with more brilliant and glorious acts than has yet fallen to the lot of mortals as it is. His works will live to endless ages, and unnumbered millions yet unborn will mention his name with honor as a noble instrument in the hands of God. Well, Joseph lived in seven states. None of them ever claimed him. He was driven from three, imprisoned by one, and martyred in another. In these states, the prophet was arrested 46 times. Yet in an eighth state, a state he would never set foot in, the state of Utah, his name is revered above that of any other mortal who has ever lived. In 1892, Andrew White, U.S. Foreign Minister to Russia, was asked by Leo Tolstoy, quote, Tell me about the religion that originated in America with Joseph Smith. Well, White admitted that he knew very little about the Mormon faith, and Tolstoy, obviously displeased, then said, If people would follow the teachings of this church and its prophet, nothing can stop America's progress. It will be limitless. If Mormonism is able to endure until the third and fourth generation, it is destined to become the greatest power the world has ever known. Well, Joseph Smith was the living embodiment of the prophets who preceded him. Hiram said, quote, There were prophets before, but Joseph has the spirit and power of all the prophets. Wilford Woodruff once remarked, The people could not bear the flood of intelligence which poured into his mind. George Q. Cannon said, The saints could not comprehend Joseph, the elders could not, the apostles could not. His knowledge was so extensive and his comprehension so great, they couldn't raise to it. Well, with the establishment of temples of the Melchizedek priesthood order, Joseph Smith, the prophet and seer of the Lord, has done more, save Jesus only, for the salvation of men in this world than any other man that has ever lived in it. Doctrine and Covenants, section 135. Let me close by sharing one last thought from Neil L. Anderson's General Conference Address. I quote, A testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith can come differently to each of us. 
It may come as you kneel in prayer, asking God to confirm that he is a true prophet. It may come as you read the prophet's account of the first vision. It may come as you bear your own testimony of the prophet, or as you stand in the temple and realize that through Joseph Smith the holy sealing power was restored to the earth. With faith and real intent, your testimony of the prophet Joseph Smith will strengthen you against the constant water balloon volleys from the sidelines. You may occasionally get wet, but they need never, ever extinguish your burning fire and testimony of Joseph Smith. So again, we come back to our original question. Was Joseph Smith an average man? Now, the prophet Joseph Smith was selected long before the world ever was and assisted our Lord and Savior in doing the will of the Father. So now we conclude our, our odyssey, our journey, and uh, we ask the question, was Joseph Smith an average man as the internet and others would have you believe? The prophet Joseph Smith was selected long before the world ever was and assisted the Lord and Savior in doing the will of our Father in heaven. I want to conclude by echoing my testimony of the Savior with that of Elder Bruce R. McConkie, which was given in the April Conference of 1985, just 11 days or so before his death. His testimony has been put into prose, it's been put into poetry and music. He said this, In a coming day I will close my weary eyes, in a coming day I will leave this mortal life. In a coming day, I will feel the prince in his hands. In a coming day, I will see the Son of Man. But when that day is here, and eternity seems very clear, I shall not know then any better than I know now that he is God's Almighty Son, my Redeemer, the Atoning One. Can't say much more than that. Elder Bruce R. McConkie's confidence of uh, the Savior and His atoning sacrifice and uh, my confidence in the Prophet Joseph Smith and his foreordained mission to restore the gospel of Jesus Christ brings our, our odyssey to a conclusion as we've followed the footsteps of Joseph through these last uh, 25 or so podcasts. I hope that you have found uh, your faith increased and your testimony and your love for the prophet Joseph Smith increased and that it's aided you in your continuing study of the doctrine and covenants and I would leave you these thoughts in the name of Jesus Christ amen now our future podcasts that we're going to have are going to be a little different where we've concluded our 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 journey with Joseph and now I want to, uh, to take a step back before Joseph and uh, perhaps take a few minutes and talk with some folks that enabled Joseph to eventually do what he did. I think it would be good to talk to perhaps um, George Washington or maybe Benjamin Franklin and some of our founding fathers and see what they had to say about what they were doing in laying the foundation for the restoration of the gospel. So until we meet again, um, I hope you're enjoying your continuing study of the DNC, and I hope that these podcasts are helping you. Thanks again for joining us. I wanted to share with you a few items. I brought a few things today um, relative to the ministry of the, and life of the, of the Savior. Um, we just concluded our podcast on Joseph and Jesus, mere reflections. So I thought it'd be nice to highlight a few things uh, from across the water. I've got three, a little bit obscure 
pictures here that I want to share with you. The first one on my far left is entitled Christ Wept, and it's done by Ray Downing. And I, I love that one. I think that's an incredibly peaceful pastel uh, portrait of the Savior. And then the one in the middle is uh, Kendra Burton's The Light of Christ. Uh, it's our green-eyed Christ. Quite often you see Christ portrayed with brown or blue eyes, but green eyes in this. This particular picture hangs in my, in my living room. Very striking picture and uh, portrays what I think perhaps the Savior looked like. And then lastly, the smaller picture here is the picture of uh, the smiling Christ, as I call it, Del Parsons' picture. If you're not familiar with Del Parsons' pictures of Christ, they hung quite often in temples and chapels uh, uh, throughout the world, and um, there was a more solemn kind of straight-faced look by the Savior. Uh, he painted these pictures at the request of Elder David B. Haight. And uh, as they were presented to Elder Haight, Elder Haight said to, to Dell, can you make him more personal? Can you make him smile more friendly? And so uh, there's quite a story behind this. Uh, this particular painting was put together with the smile, the smiling Christ, to present to Elder Haight. Unfortunately, Elder Haight passed away before he was able to uh, receive his portrait from Dell. But I really, I really like the smiling Christ picture. That is my Christ. and That's really significant. And then up here on our table, I've got a few other things. I've got um, an original crucifixion nail, as you can see here. This particular item is a first century A.D. crucifixion nail taken from the Balkans, Moesa, and uh, it's a, it was a Roman province at the time, and it's pretty brutal, and perhaps just as brutal as what's in front of it, crown thorns, crown thorns taken from uh, Jerusalem. In and around Jerusalem still today, you can find these long stem crown thorns that can be woven into, into what was plaited on the Savior's head. In fact, in Matthew 27, verse 29, it says, And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put it upon his head and a reed in his right hand. And then I've got this uh, rather hard to come by coin that's up here. You have to take a closer picture of it because on the front of it is a, is a portrait of Caesar. And if you go in Matthew chapter 22 verses 17 through 22, you read, Teacher, they said, we know that thou art true. Tell us therefore, is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? Perceiving their wickedness, he said, show me the tribute money. Whose image and subscription is it? And they said unto him, Caesar's. Render therefore unto Caesar that which are Caesar's, and to God that which is God. They marveled and went their way. So we have a, a Caesar tribute coin that you'll want to, to take a look at. And then we have these olive wood busts. This was made at my request in Bethlehem, a, a bust of the Savior. And then we have this incredible bust here. Of, uh, it's referred to as the rose design with Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus. Both of these are made of olive wood and of just one piece of wood that has been carved. And then in front here we have the Herodian oil lamp. This particular oil lamp dates 37 B.C. to 70 A.D. And it was during the time of the Savior's ministry and the Second Temple period and it was found in the Galilee region. 
So that's kind of an important piece uh, to me personally. And then lastly here, I have this mosaic. It's the Jericho Tree of Life. This particular mosaic uh, I acquired on Mount Nebo uh, in Jordan. And this Jericho Tree of Life portrays the grapes that are hanging from the Tree of Life, the grapes signifying the blood uh, of Jesus Christ. Well, that's... Uh, that's the artifacts I brought. I hope you find them interesting. And uh, if you have any questions or comments concerning these or, of course, any of our podcasts, uh, feel free to contact me. Um, my email address has been posted, but it's footstepsofjoseph at gmail.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Uh, this mosaic of the uh, Jericho Tree of Life is actually made by individuals that are that are handicapped. The state of Jordan has uh, programs where they can sit and, and break small pieces of stone and create these beautiful mosaics. The art of a mosaic is the smaller the stones, the smaller the stones, the more impressive it is and the more picturesque it becomes and the more expensive it becomes. This, is a, this has got small stones and again the Jericho Tree of Life portraying the, the grapes which signify the blood of Jesus Christ. It can come with pomegranates and other kinds of things, but uh, the, the tree of life and the blood of Christ, I think, tie in real well to some of the things that we've been talking about. Thank you for listening today and for sharing this ComeFollowMe2021.com website. We sure appreciate those who have been contributing on our Patreon page under Latter-day Media. To contact Kay, email him at footstepsofjoseph at gmail.com It has been a, it's been a trip, not a trip. What is the <laughs> word? Odyssey? What is the, what am I trying to think? It's been a, a journey. journey. Okay, all right, here we go. It's been a real trip, <laughs> folks. We have really enjoyed it. <laughs> all right. Are you from the 60s? Huh? Here, here we go. Okay.